lived on Stanford Road We'll listen to your sister When she came home from school Cause she was two years older And she had boys in her room At least outside I heard her All right Well that was all right for a while But soon I wanted more I wanted to see as well as here And so I I hid inside her wardrobe And she came home round four And she was with some kid called David And from the garage of the road I listened outside, I heard her All right I wanna take you home I wanna give you children you might be my girlfriend Yeah, 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 yeah When I saw you next day I really couldn't tell Cause you might go and tell your mother And so you went with me Oh yeah, me was coming on And I thought I heard you laughing Where is the moment that we're gone? I listen outside, I heard you All right Oh, I wanna take you home I wanna give you children And you might be my girlfriend to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard. That was Pulp and Babies, their now classic 1992 single that was re-released a couple of years later and was a hit. Pulp being one of the most important British bands of the last 30 years and Nick's been their drummer throughout that hit-making period. 
great opportunity to speak to Nick today about his time in the band as well of his latest project with the Everly Pregnant Brothers. So let's hear my chat with Nick. Hello, is that Jason? It is. Hello, Nick. How are we doing? I'm all right, thank you. Very good. So, in terms of the first track, is one that you're very synonymous with, or, or certainly for those that are familiar with uh, yeah. Pulp, and that's Babies, and that was, I think, kind of in, in one of the mm-hmm. demo versions known as Nicky's Song, because you, um, you developed the sort of guitar riff, is that true? Well, you're partly right there, and, and, right. and partly, partly wrong. Nicky's Song was a different song entirely. Right. But I can see why you might think that because um, basically, yeah, I was the um, sort of the the germ of of the of the song idea, and we used to uh, do lots of uh, different things to mm. to sort of uh, to create different or to try to start off songwriting. Lots of different techniques, and one of them was swapping instruments. So so you'd get a non non-guitar person playing guitar, etc., blah, 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 mm. uh, to try and generate ideas not based upon uh, musical technicality. Mm. It was sort of one of those sessions uh, or, uh, yeah, we often did that quite a bit. And But I think the baby's one was, I think we'd stopped for a cup of tea. So we stopped for a cup of tea and I, I think I'd finished, man. I just picked up Jarvis's guitar and started playing two chords and uh, sort of amnesty. And then Jarvis sort of said... Uh, What's those two chords you're playing there? And I went, well, one of them's G. No idea what the other one is. Because um, being a non-guitarist, mm. my, my chord knowledge is really quite limited. So I said, well, that's G. I know that, but I have no idea what that is, which was just me holding three, uh, three strings down on the top three strings um, with one finger. Uh, and I think it took job quite a while to work out it's a, it's a derivation of d i think anyway but uh, yeah so uh i was just playing the, the sort of the, the main verse verse riffs and uh which yeah i gave him the guitar back he started playing that uh he added an e for the chorus literally 20 minutes after those i'd played those first two chords we had the entire song basically and uh that was a you know that was obviously the best example of the swap instruments technique that obviously came to fruition. So I would always like to claim ownership of that song. Uh, if anyone would like to claim otherwise, uh, I'd tell them stuff off. <laughs> so yeah, so but yeah, partially true. Um, the song Nicky's song, I can't remember. That was kind of a, I don't know whether that was a kind of a, um, one done later on. Mm. Quite like the song now, maybe it escapes my mind, but I think there were two different, two different songs in my mind. Was that written in the, the late 80s? That, that will have been about uh, maybe early nineties. It first came out what ninety was it? First came out ninety three, so it was probably about ninety one, something like that. It was written, mm. yeah, early nineties, I would say, because it was written in uh, uh, in the railway arch at Catcliffe uh, upstairs there, where we had a rehearsal room. And you joined in about was it eighty six? Uh, late late eighty six, uh, I joined. Freaks had just come out, and as is the typical pulp way, half the band decided to bugger off. So, um, hmm. so I kind of came in, and then it sort of became pulp version five or something, whatever it was. God knows, but yeah, late '86. In terms of sort of that post Freaks era, that was a time which marked, I guess, all all the phases 
of, of pulp and the lineup change marked a, a, a transition in sound. But this one in particular, you know, such a, a big change from Freaks to yeah. Oriva, an electronic and disco thing. Yeah, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, changes of personnel are going to, you know, bring in different approaches and that sort of thing. So, so yeah, my, my drumming style is quite different to Magnus's, which is more sort of... Uh, looser perhaps more florid whereas mine i would sort of say was more stompy which i suppose would lend itself to a more discoified sort of feel i mean and and also that change uh, a lot of it was driven by jarvis having a yamaha porter sound keyboard which when he fell out of the window and bust his legs um when he was sort of recovering in the hospital i think his his mum or his grandma bought him in this keyboard with this you know, sort of rubbish preset disco sounds on so he started writing some songs using that sort of rubbish disco sound you get on these little portable keyboards so we sort of when one side joined we basically we'd never played any songs on freaks at all uh, and we just worked on these new songs that hmm. jarvis had developed a lot of them using this yamaha port sound keyboard hence things like death comes to town and death Etc. and jolly title songs like that. Yeah, there's a. I mean, separations came out quite a bit later, ultimately. But there's some yeah. great tracks on there. Yeah. Like, a song like "Love Love Is Blind" is quite symptomatic of that that shifting sound, but also yeah. that more direct style. Yeah, def- definitely. Yeah, and also sort of the, there was quite a, a Russell influence of, in in that sort of period as well, sort of mm. Eastern European bent. Uh, Sort of Love Is Blind, uh, a song called Rattlesnakes. I don't think ever got really released at the time. Yeah, some some very sort of Eastern European uh, stompers. Yeah, that's the sort of violin that he brought. Yeah, you you could do that in those days. You know, strange Eastern European uh, type songs. But I suppose ultimately it didn't help us that much because we were still years in the wilderness. But hey ho, you got to try something, haven't you?
Legendary Girlfriend, which I think the first single prior to the eventual release of Separation. Yeah. Am I right that it had a mix of drum machine as well as live drums, or was yeah. it just drum drum machine? Uh, uh, yeah, basically, yeah, you're right. A mix of, of drum machine and live drums on on that. We that was uh, recorded uh, with uh, Alan Smythe, who went on to basically uh, 
sort of discover the Arctic monkeys uh, later on uh, in life. We had a budget, but it was still quite a limited budget to record these songs, and uh, a lot of drum machine was employed, basically, so that uh, you know, so that the the budget wasn't all eaten up by spending hours getting a decent drum sound because we start our instruments were pretty ropey, so you'd spend a lot of time trying to get a drum sound. So Al sort of said, "Well, let's let's do a lot on drum machine so we can get a, a good drum sound cheaply, basically." So we did a lot of programmed drums on there, and then we sort of mixed in some live stuff as well. Um, mm. So yeah, so yeah, I, I, all I was concerned with, yeah, yeah, I'm sure a lot of uh, drummers would have felt that they'd had their nose put out of joint by the producer saying, "Right, sob that, we're going to use a drum machine." But I just, I, I was just so keen on making mm. uh, a record as good as we possibly could. Um, so if that meant mixing in drum machines, live drums, uh, if it meant doing that, I was all for it. It wasn't, I, I wasn't too precious to sort of say, no, I'm playing on all these records, don't care. Um, it was just a case of get as, get as good a sound as we possibly could. And I think, because we listened to it um, a few years back uh, when we were rehearsing up for the 2011 jaunt, we, we listened back to some tracks on on some really big speaks, and we were we were amazed how how chunky it really sounded. So yeah, we had to do that. Yeah, these things you got to do.
does feel like that. That's a period 87, 88, leading into 92, marks that shift in, shift in the band and then the sort of guitars start coming to the fore a bit more, a bit like, you know, yeah. tracks like She's a Lady, which kind of blends that sort of more electronic with guitar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, cause She's a Lady was a... We, we always used to uh, have... Um, we used to play that live uh, and it was a real stomp and real, it really kind of got uh, our sort of early crowds, you know, it really sort of got them going. But when we ever tried to record it, it always just never, never seemed to be able to capture the excitement and uh, and sort of rush of feeling that we get when we played it live. So we sort of, rather than try and fight against that, we sort of took it the other way and made it sort of more, more of a kind of electronic feel rather than a sort of a sort of live stomper, I suppose you could say. You just got to try lots of different things, I guess. Mm, and the, it's quite interesting across this pulp, pulp's career. There's, there's a few songs that barely got a release that kind of seemed to fall yeah. through the, the cracks that, that live yeah. really worked, but just didn't yeah. come, like, you know, songs like Live On or We Can Dance Again. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's just, yeah, we just couldn't certainly live on. That was a, a real, real crowd favourite when we played live. But we just, again, we just never seem to get it sounding exciting when we, when we got it in the studio. So yeah, it just fell between, between the, the stools as, as some of them do. And the sort of the, the great last track, Death Comes to Town, which we thought uh, was mm. nailed on. If, 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 if we get this on the radio, this song would be a hit because we just thought it was fantastic. And, uh, and we recorded it and we thought we've got a great, great recording. But of course, we're having to deal with Fire Records who, you know, uh, no one uh, who's ever come into contact with Fire Records has ever got a good word to say about them, and I would fall into that category uh, uh, myself. And so, you know, you, we tried to get it released. We uh, Fon Records, uh, who kind of went on to be sort of almost Warp Records, we tried to get them to release it. They were sort of, because uh, of our uh, terrible sort of contractual situation, they were sort of scared off by it. Um, and it never never got released, and so you, after a bit, you you think, well, that's not working, and you, you you constantly work on other things. And it was in the dark days of, you know, gigs were few and far between, and uh, you know we're on a a crap record label with a crap contract that we desperately wanted to get out of, but couldn't really see how to. And so yeah, things just do disappear. A shame, really. We could have, we could have made it years before we did, uh, but we just didn't. Yeah, because I think Death Comes to Town. I think was it the Fon version? Eventually, eventually got released in recent years. Yeah, one record. I think we yeah we recorded it at Fon. I mean, that was probably the yeah. yeah. Got released some obscure, some obscurity. It was probably uh, appropriated by the folks at Fire, <laughs> who probably didn't have really any contractual say to it and just probably pinched it which is the kind of thing you, you deal with you know
There was no need to be afraid Oh, you've got such a beautiful body Oh, you make such a beautiful body I stalk these yellow lit cul-de-sacs at night You hear my footstep on your bedroom stair And I will take the first point in every house in town I'll take your sisters and I'll lay them down I'll lay them down tonight now I'll take your mother and your father as he lies in bed at night It seemed at the moment for Pulp where you weren't gigging as much because I think Jarvis was in yep. was in London. The music scene seemed to change and things started to pick up and eventually you, you also moved down to, to London as things yeah, started to pick up. Well, it, uh, Steve was um, living in London, Jarvis was living in London. We didn't really have a bass player and I remember I was talking to Jarvis about it and I said, well, what about Steve Mackey we knew, knew from Sheffield? Oh, he's living down there. Why don't you know, try and get in touch with Steve and see if he fancies doing it. So Jarvis did and Steve jumped at the chance and I think a few months later Steve was saying that he'd uh, got a, a room going in his flat in South London, which was a squat. We, uh, he said, I've got a sofa. Well, you know, I might as well, everyone else is down there. I might as well move down for a bit. So I, I lived down there for a couple of years. And we started, yeah, like the legendary girlfriend got a good write up in the, uh, in the enemy. And it was kind of the first uptick since, mm. since, uh, uh, little girl really, which was a, a single of the week. Uh, but the difference between uh, this uptick and the previous one is that this one didn't stop upticking. It very slowly we were starting to get, you know, better writers, and we started getting a bit of more attention, and we started to get a couple of little bit better gigs and that kind of thing. And people started coming to see us a little bit more. So it was very gradual. That's where the sort of the the start of the the slope began, really, because we were in London. It did. It did help uh, to a certain extent. Yeah, it wasn't the. I don't think it was the the main thing, but it it it, it was part of the. It was like another brick in the wall, you know, that has, that was in there to help, you know, build, pull up, you know, and uh, we we finally had some solid foundations and bricks were st- slowly starting to be put into place, you know. Um, but as you know, it still took a hell of a long time. I'm 
Is it right that you kind of more consciously aim to write pop songs in that period 
as opposed to many bands in in the what yeah. could be now seen as the indie genre, which were kind of uh, more sort of shoegazing. Yeah, I mean, um, we were all quite, um, well, I say against, but quite dismissive of overly distorted music like your G's and Mary Chains and your uh, rides and things like that and like your shoegazy stuff, My Bloody Valentine, etc. Uh, as Jarvis would call it, Hoover music. It sounded like you know, the, you know with a Hoover on. And <laughs> certainly everyone in the band really weren't into noisy music. We weren't particularly into grunge, weren't particularly into shoegazing. We preferred things like Burt Bacharach and uh, uh, sort of 60s singers, your Lee Hazelwood, etc. So I don't think particularly, you don't think, oh, we're going to write pop songs. Although that was mentioned, well, let's try and write pop songs because they're really hard to write. You end up something like a stupid nursery rhyme, uh, you know. In fact, just this afternoon, I was driving the missus into town and we were talking about pop Mm. songs. And I was saying it's, it's it's really hard to write a, a, a pop song that doesn't sound stupid, and you know some rubbish we you know we, we worked out and tried to do was just cheesy horrible. Mm. Uh, but you know by doing that you do some worthy items did did come through you know. But what made some of those uh, singles that came out on, on the uh, the mm. gift? label was that actually the Jarvis's lyrics tied to that sound yeah, I think, made them left field yeah well he, he did some of that I think there was a, a lyrical shift a bit certainly say from the let's say the, 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 the pre-me era the, the freaks era to mm. to sort of the separations and moving on here I think there was certainly a a lyrical shift to start getting a bit more um, seedy and, and that kind of thing, and yeah, he did sort of, uh, I suppose, become a bit of a sex symbol, which we f- which we thought was utterly, utterly hilarious. You know, we'd see him in his in his Oxfam clothes and uh, you know, hair all over the place, and you know, not washed for a few days. It was not a sex symbol, I can assure you, but the press seemed to think take up on this, and maybe that was kind of like a virtuous circle that if people sort of thought, you know. It's, Thinking he was being a bit, um, a bit sexy, maybe kind of brought that a bit more into into his lyric writing. Uh, uh, so maybe it was a bit of a virtuous circle. I don't know, but yeah, when when people say Jarvis the sex symbol, we were like, "Crikey, <laughs> that is a big leap of uh, faith." That is. <laughs> but his, his lyrics had a bit of a, a sort of an observational style, you know, like a, almost a character yeah. study. Tracks like Rasmataz, where he's kind of talking about someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, when you move to London, you do meet some characters, and certainly as we started getting around a bit, you, you certainly did start. And obviously, Travis was at St Martin's Art College, which obviously was full of people dressed as Christmas trees and that kind of thing. So it was all a bit different. And what I found when I moved down to London is that you. Yeah, you, know, you you feel that a connection to the place you've come from. You see it in a different line, you, and and it sort of affects you in a different way. And so maybe that had a a point there that you see the the strange stuff of Sheffield compared in the uh, through sort of a prism of not being there uh, as something maybe more worth worthy of talking about, perhaps. Yeah, because you then know what makes Sheffield unique because you're not there. But yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And you, and you, you look back to it and you think about the characters perhaps you're meeting in London and reflect them against perhaps the characters you knew from Sheffield. And often they can be very different, you know, certainly going towards that, the, the uh, character in common people, uh, the, the Greek girl, feeling that people are slumming it a bit, you know, uh, hanging out with kids who've actually got no money just because it's just a bit daft, you know. 
you did meet that those, those kind of people who were, you know, didn't have to live in a squat, mm. but thought, hey, I'm going to be edgy and live in a squat, but didn't really have to, you know. You did meet those kind of people.
had a series of singles that kind of started getting to the sort of very, very lower echelons of the charts. And then you had Lip yeah. Gloss, which I think was like, I don't know, 50 or something. But then, yeah. am I right that you think the first big single was Do You Remember the First Time? Uh, well, the first, Babies was the first one that got us on top of the pops. Right. Um, so, kid, you know, kids these days, the top of the pops was that, you know, hmm. it's an old, old thing. But when I was, you know, in my teenage years. Big deal. Top of the Pops was the big deal. If you were on Top of the Pops, you could officially call yourself a pop star. You know, if you if you're in a band and you haven't been on Top of the Pops, you were a wannabe pop star. But you can only say you were if you'd been on Top of the Pops. So once we'd been on that, you know, we were dead. We were you know so chuffed that we made it onto Top of the Pops. Yeah, it was unreal. Unfortunately, once you've been on it a couple of times, you realise that it's a very very dull day, and you don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> so. Hmm. But yeah, but yeah, being on that. So, so for me, Babies was the the, the big breakthrough record because she got on top of the pops. But it was, you know, I could saying about the slope of sort of stardom. Let's say, you know, you, hmm. you know, for, for 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 still for such a long time, it was going up, but an almost an imper- imperceptible slope. You know, you didn't see, you know, for a long time, you didn't really think you were getting anywhere, but that slope was slowly getting steeper and steeper and steeper. You know, but you don't notice it. But um, do you remember the first time, you know, it was one of those where you kind of had, uh, you know, a decent budget for a a video and, you know, you you knew that people were expecting it and waiting for it and wanting it. And because, because, you know, we'd have lip gloss had been out and you'd done well with babies, etc. And stuff had got, you know, a better sort of reception and you're doing more press on that kind of thing. And of course, coming out on Island Records, you could have a, 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 a bigger push behind it. And we had publicists, we had radio pluggers and all this kind of thing. Again, you know, really good people who were like, like the blocks in a wall, putting all these people in place. So we're at that stage where we kind of had the kind of utmost confidence that people were going to get to hear it. And we were confident it was good. They were going to like it. And, and they did. And, that was pleasing. You've got kind of the drums and this it propels, yeah. you hear it and it instantly sort of grabs your attention and sort of pushes you along. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, again, um, I can't think of the writing of Do You Remember the First Time. Um, I can't remember the, that actually the, the writing process, maybe it was longer, took longer than perhaps other ones because you kind of remember the immediate, the immediate ones. Mm. Um, I just, I just remember uh, part of that trying to get my, uh, my style of playing to sound like Ped Gill of Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Um, the way he used to use his, uh, his uh, sort of hi hat patney accents on that. I really wanted it to uh, have a vibe of that. And uh, you know, whether it did or not, who knows? But uh, but then you then you learn out that uh, uh, Trevor Horn programmed all the drums anyway. Never played never played a note on any of the records. So rather than saying Ped Gill, probably uh, Trevor Horn would be more. Uh, uh, <laughs> the correct analogy to make. Again, 
About a year or so later, you went to work with Chris Thomas, who's got yeah. massive pedigree in in the industry. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, you know, I think when, once we once we'd done the um, his and hers album with Ed Buller, we sort of you know when it was sort of time for the next record, and you know we, we knew it was going to be 
hopefully, we knew it was going to be a, a step up. Um, it, it was going to be seen and, and reviewed eagerly. So I think we thought, well, Ed did a good job, but perhaps it was maybe a little bit too reverby, a bit too echoey, etc. So we thought, well, uh, we're going to have a island are going to give us basically as much money as we want to record it so we can get in someone who's going to really do an interesting job and uh, remember a few names being banded around as long as, as well as, mm. as uh, mr thomas there was you know, like jeff lynn uh, he was talked about for a bit Vince clark in rage he was talked about we've done some tracks with stephen street who did the blur stuff he was obviously the mid-90s go-to sort of young bloke. Mm. He was sort of in the frame, you know, there's, there's, there's quite a few folks. But in the end, uh, we went with Thomas because he just looked at the, the songs he'd done in the past and he just kind of thought, he knows what he's doing. And yeah, interesting bloke, very interesting bloke. Looked a bit like Mick Fleetwood. Big, big sound though. Big sound, big studio. Yeah, big sound. There's yeah, the kitchen sink on there, you know, doing... Different class, you know, there was times when, you know, you thought, you know, you're going to be in a 24-track studio. I saw that, let's go 48-track in here. Oh, no, that's not enough. I think they ended up with like 72 tracks on there, <laughs> something something absolutely crazy like that. But, yeah, yeah, everything goes on there. You know, the uh, once, that's one of the, the, the great things about uh, going in the studio is that when you're writing and you're rehearsing up the songs, all you hear is guitar, bass, drums, keyboards, mumbled singing. You never even hear any words, but then you go into the studio and you can lay you lay the basics down, and then you start hearing the words, and then all the other stuff gets added that beefs the sound up. There. The little bits that folk think of and go on, and that's all adds to it that, that you sort of see the development of the overall sound, uh, and that's the the really exciting bit, you know. And uh, and certainly hearing the words, we knew this song was called Common People. But he never heard any words because all you got was, you know, sort of Jarvis working out his, his melody rather than before thinking of the actual words. But then in the studio, you know, you hear, you hear the words come out and you start thinking, yeah, this is getting really interesting, you know. And, and one of my favorite bits about the, the recording of Common People is, uh, he was doing some, I can't remember, it was mixing or, or doing some overdubs and stuff like that. All sat in the studio, you know, lolling around, reading the paper, you know, being, deeply bored and uh, I think someone was out in the corridor the doors were open someone was out in the corridor with a hoover hoovering up and uh, mm. Mr Thomas uh, took umbrage suddenly stormed out of the studio shouting this thing we're trying to make a fucking hit record here and slammed the door sort of thing and we were all kind of like, perked up from our newspapers going oh, oh what was that you know and he sat back down and pressed play <laughs> and it sort of really hit home that yeah you were making a hit record and it was kind of quite an amazing realization that you know although the record wasn't finished it was going to be a hit record and that was quite an amazing uh, moment really and com people as a, as a trackers in particular of all the the songs on um different class is one that is just propelled so you've got a, a range of yeah. instruments including drums that have such a driving sound it's not yeah. a complex no. musically but it just kicks well, that's it. Because uh, I would like to say one of my one of my uh, uh, styles is uh, not adhering to perfect time. So hmm. some would say that's a, a flaw in a drummer. I would say it's a, it's you know, it's it's a requisite part um, because it gives you the excitement of the uh, of the track. And we tried we tried doing it when we was recorded at a constant tempo. 
So we decided to start at the start tempo and keep that going throughout the song. And sort of halfway through, everyone was falling asleep. It was so dull. Mm. So we thought, all right, well, that's no good. So why don't we try it at the end tempo? And it was like, my God, this is starting so fast. What well, you know, We couldn't handle it. <laughs> so that was no good. We tried the middle tempo and it just didn't have, it just didn't have the, the drive. It didn't have the, the excitement didn't have that that feeling of almost like a runaway train you know the feeling that it's just you know the excitement builds and builds and, and it comes to the crescendo so we ended up doing it so that the, the so the tempo because obviously you had to use a, a click track in your headphones to record it so that all the electronics could be fixed onto it as well uh, in in correct time and so we ended up starting starting at my start tempo and ma- mapped it out so that the the, the beats per minute gradually got higher and higher throughout the song so it so it mapped exactly how i would play it without any sort of uh, click track in the headphones you how I'd play it normally um and that's how we ended up doing it because it gave it its, its excitement gave it, it its rush you know that's how we had to do it yeah it's a, it's a much of a, a contrast to, to the um how much of popular music is today but when you look at um yeah. ACDC and, and Phil Rudd yeah. or John Bonham in relation to Led Zeppelin, and you actually track the speed of the drums. It, it fluctuates, but that's what gives it its kind of its soul. Yeah, and... yeah. yeah, I think. Well, it's. I think it certainly gives gives songs a, a, a sense of excitement, a sense of you know this is something to you know get excited about. So I'd like to take the credit for all that. Thank you. St. Martin's College, that's where I got her eye. She told me that the dad was loaded. I said, in that case, I'm a rumor. Coca Cola, she said, fine. And then in 30 seconds' time, she said, I wanna live like common people. I wanna do whatever common people do Wanna sleep with common people I wanna sleep with common people like you Or what else could I do? I said, oh, I'll see what I can do I took her to a supermarket I don't know why, but I had to start somewhere it started there I said pretend you got no money And she just laughed and said Oh you're so funny I said yeah I can't see anyone else smiling here. Are you sure? You wanna live like common people You wanna see whatever common people see Wanna sleep with common people You wanna sleep with Common people like me, but she didn't understand. And she just smiled and held my hand. I went to the flagship of the shop. I cut your hair and get a job. I smoke some facts and play some pool. 
And obviously, you know, massively successful and Glastonbury is well yeah. remembered and a massive triumph. Such a contrast to five or six years before, you know, you're headlining Glastonbury one minute and then yeah. you were struggling to fill a, a pub five or six years before. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, you're right. The story of how we got Glastonbury is quite well known, but thank you, uh, John Squire, for 
uh, for falling off your your bike and busting your collarbone. Yeah, I'll forever be grateful for him doing that. Hmm. Um, and and you know, we got a you know got a chance. You know, it's not often, not every day you get a, a phone call from someone saying uh, yes, uh, yeah, um, uh, yeah. Do you fancy headlining Glastonbury on the Saturday night? Um, yeah, okay, yeah, we'll do that. You know, so we went and did it, and you've never seen five people in a room so shit scared of something that you know the sort of the, the ten minutes before we're due on stage on that uh, that that June night, or just sat there looking at each other. Everyone was literally quaking, as I'm sure you could imagine, because we didn't know whether hmm. whether this audience that had paid to see the Stone Roses were going to bottle us off, yeah, or what. We just didn't know. And it seems crazy now. We, I think we played six new songs, or something in that set that we that we sort of were mid recording for different class. So bizarre, bizarre. But yeah, and then we sort of finished with common people, and you, and you sort of look up at the end, and and how every every member of the audience seemed to be singing at the top of their voice, and all you could hear was the crowd singing, you know, even above your own plane. So it was pretty, pretty amazing, really. Sort of strange in a way because you you didn't change your sound to conform to what was going on it was actually the people caught up with you yeah things change don't they people, people are fickle buggers and you know everybody been to plaid shirts and nirvana hmm. a couple of years before and then all of a sudden everyone's wearing daft ties and sort of corduroy you know a couple of years later fashion changes and i suppose it kind of moved in our direction i suppose and and we were the beneficiaries of such. And people like different things. People like things to be new. Uh, you know, you've got this uh, lanky get arsing around on stage. You know, people think, ah, that's different. That's interesting. We'll have a bit of that. So there you go. We were the beneficiaries, I suppose. But yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Our lowest attended gig, which I think was two paying customers at uh, a club called the, um, the 20th Century Club in Derby. That would have only been about five years previously, if that, maybe even less. Um, to yeah, to play in front of about hundred thousand people, yeah, it's quite a, it's quite a, uh, quite a move, quite a move. And even those two people at the 20th Century Club, they'd gone in on the wrong day. <laughs> so really, uh, these two, yeah, these these two girls. I, I hope they, hope they remember that that hmm. that gig. These two, well, a car of, car of lads came down from Sheffield to watch. So there was more people. They they didn't pay to get in, of course. Yeah. Came to watch. So there was about six people in the audience, only two of which had actually paid to go in, and they'd gone in on the wrong day. And these two girls, and I hope they remember that day because even because we'd have just gone, oh sod it, we'll go home. We still we still played in a gig, and they, hopefully they remember it and enjoyed it because uh, yeah, <laughs> they'd gone in on the wrong day. Thought it was something else. <laughs> but there you go, two people. And then after different class, you had the the task of trying to follow it that follow that up, and you know, given that. You were shifting your sound. It must have been quite a period where it's like, well, where do you go after yeah, such uh, success? Yeah, yeah, very much so. We had uh, you know, a, a few conversations of like, we don't want to churn out versions of common people or, or trying to get back to... Paul has always really wanted to um, develop and, and try different sort of things out. There, wasn't, there was never sort of a thing, oh, we're going... We're now going to make an album that's um, dark and uh, uh, confusing to our fans, uh, maybe a bit dour. Um, it's kind of what comes out, really. But I know that we didn't really want to just trot out different class two. 
so yeah, you just it was very hard to make. This is hardcore, very hard indeed. It took a long, long time. And I think that maybe that's a yeah you know, a function of having finally found success is that mm. you've sort of got uh, a focus before that of where you are going, and when you've got there, where do you go next? And it's difficult to difficult to do basically. So it took a hell of a long time, and it was uh, yeah tough. Tough things, but um, you know the, the track. This is hardcore. Uh, that, yeah, that took absolutely forever to to get right. But you know, you still listen to that now, and you, you still do deal. Still get the you know the the goosebumps. So it's yeah, amazing, amazing uh, bit of work, really. But it took a hell of a long, hell of a long time to get. There's a a sample that that's throughout. This is hardcore. Was it hard in terms of drawing um, to that? It was a bit because it kind of gave you a bit of a, a beat as well. So. It, uh, so when you're sort of using things like drum machine type stuff, like you've got a little bit of a beat in that, and some of the older stuff with the Yamaha port sound had beats. You had to kind of, you're either going to go between what the the machine's doing, or sort of just back up what the machine's doing, and then you've got to, you know, sort of try and keep in time and all that sort of thing. You know, because obviously with this is hard, we've been been sort of quite a long, long piece. Uh, we were sort of weld trying to weld various other ideas into it as well to make it. You know, interest because obviously if you've got one sample going all the way through, you know, it can get a little bit tiresome. So you're trying to bring in other elements in with it. So, uh, to, to keep the, the interest going, it took a long time to get the right elements sort of working together, I suppose. Um, mm. yeah, it just, just takes a long time.
And in those sessions, there's um, a track that I think eventually came out as a B-side, yeah. Tomorrow Never Lies. But actually, that was um, potentially a, a Bond theme, something you were asked to try out for. Yeah, we got a yeah, recording. This is hardcore in Olympic Studios in Barnes. And uh, yeah, I think we got a message through from the management saying, oh, yeah, that people of Bond have... Sent it, probably a fax in them days, saying they'd like Paul to submit a song for the next Bond film tomorrow never lies. So we all thought, massive Bond fans love Bond music. We've got to go for this. We've got to try. And so we sort of got a this note came down something like a Wednesday, and they said, "Oh yeah, by the way, could we have it by Friday?" It was so typical of. of film people <laughs> they think you've just got something you know off the shelf you can just send in you know oh yeah we've, we've always got a few bond tracks just sat waiting for the call so luckily we were you know in the recording studio at the time so it was a case of right okay what have we got uh, you know left over from the writing sessions that we could perhaps utilize for this so i think we had we had one first cause it's kind of like in two bits of song i'm not heard it for ages to be honest and i think we had the first bit of we'd worked out and then I think I suggested oh why don't we try that bit stick it on either the middle or the end or something and it was quite exciting because we, we sort of worked it out one after, one morning sticking these two bits together uh, in the studio and then we, we literally recorded it in the afternoon mixed it in the evening and sent it off on like the Friday morning and then in typical uh, film circles you, know, you, you just hear that Cheryl Crow Got it. And you think, well, yeah, why did we go to all that bloody effort? Then we said, well, we're not going to waste it. It was quite an exciting little thing. So put it out as 
Not tomorrow never lies, but tomorrow never dies. Or the other way around. I can't remember now. But yeah, that was quite exciting. Tomorrow never dies So live for today Don't be afraid of the skeletons Of yesterday Each morning brings you closer to your goal So grab your chance to let it go City streets are littered with the casualties The could-haves and the should-haves and the would-have-beens Don't let your chance slip by
terms of the album that became Wheel of Life, we we having kept starting to try and record with Chris Thomas again, but things were just not gelling. Yeah, it was kind of it was even more difficult than than hardcore really because um, I had a bit bit of a break and then we sort of slowly sort of putting songs together and um, yeah, it, it was it was difficult. We we started doing some bits with Chris Thomas. But I think it was a case of we hadn't really, with, with some of the others, we'd, we'd worked on the songs to a, more of a finished degree and then we started coming in with sort of, you know, sort of half thought ideas and trying to do them in the studio, which for me isn't really the way things should, should be done. You know, I think you've got to come in with finished 100% or say 90% finished items, but, and I think we weren't so much. So yeah, I think, um, we just thought we were just going to sort of get the same as what we'd had before. And we thought it was time to try something else out. So we tried with various folks. And there was a chat with glasses, but what was his name? Can't remember. Uh, yeah, we, we did. We basically recorded the album twice. We recorded it once and just thought it wasn't, well, it wasn't interesting enough, I suppose. It wasn't sonically doing what we wanted it to do. So, you know, we sort of started casting around to see if there'd been someone else. I can't remember who else had, had, had sort of been in the in the frame. But yeah, then you get another one of these these uh, you know, life sort of changing phone calls of uh, uh, Jeff Travis saying uh, saying uh, yeah um, uh, yeah uh, I just had a call from Scott Walker's manager. Uh, yeah, Scott's really into doing a uh, a sort of more more of a, a pop album than a uh, hmm. experimental album. Uh, what do you think if Scott Walker did it? You know, obviously, I mean, me and Giles are huge Scott Walker fans. It was kind of like uh, this is an opportunity not to be missed to work with someone like Scott Walker. So uh, off we toddled back into the studio with uh, with Scott Walker to do it, and uh, yeah, that was quite uh, quite amazing, really. Working with the, with the great man, sadly gone. Sadly gone. I don't think in terms of sales it was a, a massive seller, but no. actually, if one of your best albums, I think certainly my personal opinion, it's a fine yeah. fine record. Yeah, it's certainly got a got a breadth of stuff on there you know and it does, certainly doesn't sound like we're trying to uh sort of re-record stuff we've done before if you know what I mean, or try and get it sound like stuff before it is it is different a bit more sort of uh hippie-ish kind of album i suppose but yeah i just think yeah you just got to try things but it, it, it was re- again another one that was really hard to do and i think by the end of by the end of that we sort of realized that you know maybe our time you know, as was drawing to a period where having a rest was maybe the best option, uh, and and that pulp never really mm. stops. It just sometimes got gets shoved under the bed for a few years. So after the after we'd done the you know the Wheel of uh, Life tour and again finished it uh, back in back in in Sheffield, it was um, what it seemed like a, a natural way to. You know, to to draw the veil for a bit and to uh, and to move on and go and have a rest. So we did, basically. Sunrise, you know, I think that was released as a, some sort of joint A side, but that that song in particular should have been a, a big hit. Yeah, he, he's kind of like a bit of a uh, magnum opus, I suppose. Yeah, great great one to uh, to play that one as well. So uh, yeah, I don't know. He's, he's, you know, these days, uh, I suppose it'd start coming in in, in the two thousands. Uh, you know, songs of length that aren't immediately there. You know, do they get chosen to play on the radio? Were Pulp Cedars a bit of last year's model type thing? It's, I suppose it's just the way the spotlight of interest 
uh, moves around. You know, once you kind of move out of the spotlight, difficult to get back in there, I suppose. Yeah, I think um, I think we'll have to uh, a solid solid body of work.
There's one one track that I think originates from the the We Love Live sessions that there was yeah. a, a release of, which was uh, After You, and you kind of re-recorded that song um, yeah. for some of your live shows. Uh, yeah, um, I'm not really sure why, why how that came about. We started recording that. It was kind of in the midst of time, but um, I think we just kind of uh, we'd been. We'd been rehearsing for for some shows, and we'd start messing around with that. And I think Jarvis thought it would be interesting to to record it and see, you know, maybe it was it was sort of testing the water whether uh, we should think about doing a new record. We didn't in the end, but all the same, you know, uh, after you was quite uh, yeah, quite interesting. Yeah, the guy that did it, you probably had to tell me, James. Oh, Murphy. James Murphy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he was a nice, he was a nice lad. Yeah, shows that shows me age. Can't remember these young people's names. <laughs>
So then, since that period, you've played some shows with Pulp, but mm-hmm. in more recent years, you're much more active with the Everly Pregnant Brothers. How did you get to, to link up with them and Pete McKee well, yeah, and the guys yeah. there? Yeah, well, I knew, I knew Pete McKee a little bit through uh, Richard Orley and I hadn't really seen the, the Everly Pregnant Brothers at all. And uh, Pete just said uh, one day in the pub, do you fancy joining us for a couple of songs um, at our you know, show coming up? And I said, well, yeah, of course, yeah. I, I, I like to think that if you, know, you don't do anything, nothing happens. So I, I said, yeah, we'll come play on a couple of songs. So we played, me and Johnny on the double bass was asked at the same time. So we mm. we had a good uh, a good time you know sort of bit of rehearsing and playing playing on a couple of songs uh it was a two two night gig so i think on the second night we played a couple of other songs as well and um yeah they, they enjoyed the contributions that we made so they said oh well, well will you keep playing with us and, and that so he said well everyone's a you know a member of the band is a nice person and we all have a great time doing it so you know it's no it's not difficult to say yes when being in a band should be good fun. And uh, with the Everleys, it is great fun. There's no great pressure. Um, the live gigs are pretty special because uh, you know, the, the crowd participation and that. And yeah, it's kind of, you know, a band should be like being in, a, in, in your own gang. So um, so you do. So yeah, it, it's like being in our own little gang, like a little gang of uh, over 50s who have got uh, more medical complaints and bleeding Holby City. Do you think, therefore, the uh, the track prescription drugs from the, the, the latest Everly Pregnant Brothers album would be appropriate to finish on then? <laughs> Very much so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. yeah there's, there's plenty of... Plenty of yeah, we've got, we've, I've got a bad knee. One of the lads has got a, just had a back operation. Obviously, Pete's uh, had a liver transplant has just had another operation. Big Sean is... Uh, he's, uh, constantly yeah, having problems so yeah we're right to right bunch of old crocs for those that, that don't know the everly pregnant brothers do their own versions often on the ukulele of mm. very famous tracks is, is it pete who kind of That's gets right. with, with often with often you know liberal amounts of swearing in there <laughs> yeah it's, it's probably very uh litigious copyright wise but uh you know hey we're just we're just we're just having a bit of fun <laughs> that's all no there's no high art in there it's just a bit of fun get people to have a few pints, sing Top of the Voices, mm. and enjoy it. Because you've got a couple of sort of Christmas shows at the O2 Academy in Sheffield, and then you're coming up to Wakefield in February? Yeah, we're coming to Wakefield. I think we're playing in Saltair as well, which is a bit further. It's, yeah, um, two, two nights at the O2 in Sheffield. We've got various, a few gigs coming up uh, in uh, in 20, 2020, and then hopefully try and get a few more um, festival slots here, there, and everywhere. And yeah, as long as it stays fun, we'll do it. Very good. Well, um, all the best with those shows, and and, and may, maybe things will come around with Pulp one more time again. Yeah, never, so that'd be nice. Never say never. Thanks a lot. Take care. Yeah, bye now. Make me crazy. 
me fucking sweat. Yeah. I gotta take two for me back. I take two for me sweaty ass crack in the morning, late at night. And if I don't take the pills, I feel fucking shite. And I'm I take two for me back. I take two for me sweaty ass crack in the morning, late at night. And if I take a blue pill, I can go all night. And I'm horny, ready for prescription drugs. Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's been almost 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.